Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Here's why you should watch today's briefing. U.S. authorities have sanctioned crypto mixing service Tornado Cash. We'll explain what it is and why it matters. Plus, we'll hear from investors on what he thinks of the Ethereum merge. We will break down our conversation with Seth Gins and leave you with key takeaways. Welcome to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. My name is Ash Bennington. With me today, we have Moritz Siebert. Let's get right in to the latest price action. Bitcoin is lower as it struggles to remain above the 24,000 mark it hit earlier today. It's become a bit of a resistance level uh, as it was reached three times already this month. Forbes is reporting the recent plunge has hurt the crypto ATM market. This chart from coinatmradar.com shows rapidly falling new installations. So far in August, more crypto ATMs have been removed than installed. Forbes says the last time this happened was in 2015. Looking at price movement again, one notable performer today is Zcash. It's a cryptocurrency focused on privacy and anonymity. It's been one of the biggest gainers following the Tornado Cash development which is today's top story. The U.S. Treasury Department has sanctioned Tornado Cash. It's a cryptocurrency mixing service that makes transactions more private. U.S. authorities have called Tornado Cash, quote, notorious. They accused it of helping North Korea, uh, in their a hacking group in North Korea, I should say, uh, launder stolen funds, which allegedly includes $455 million stolen as part of the largest known crypto heist when NFT-backed video game Axie Infinity was targeted in a $600 million hack in March. Some companies have already cut ties with Tornado Cash. One of them is Circle, the consortium behind the USDC stablecoin. Uh, it told the block it being Circle. Uh, it is blacklisted wallet addresses controlled by Tornado Cash. Moritz, give us some context on the Tornado Cash story. Sure, happy to do that, Ash. Um, like you said, Tornado Cash is a mixer. It's an Ethereum mixer, to be precise. So this is a difference that it's not a privacy coin such as, for example, Monero. And so you or can Zcash. use it in, or Zcash, as you have mentioned. And um, so what essentially happens is all the deposits on the platform, they get pooled, then they get mixed, and therefore you no longer know the origin. Right, so I can do a transaction with you or anybody else, and it's kind of like you know the, the direct connect between the receiving and the sending wallet is broken at that point. So that's the mixer. And if you're doing you know illicit business, the Lazarus Group, North Korea hackers, you know that's one of the services that they use. I've never used it. I I don't have any any need to use it. Um, interestingly, the website's down. I'm not sure if it's down in the United States, but it's uh, down across Europe. I've checked with a couple of friends on WhatsApp. It's definitely no longer working in Germany. It's no longer working in Poland. It's no longer working in France. So when the US sanctions something, it seems to be moving quite quickly all around the world. 
Um, is this a good thing? Honestly, Ash, I don't know. I'm not sure um, why why the blacklisting would really stop the hacking, whether that's done by North Korea or any other group or any other country. Um, point A and point B, as a as a you know me as Moritz, I think privacy is an important thing when it comes to you know monetary transactions. When we do a cash transaction, that is completely private, right? I mean, to the extent I'm not using my credit card or or debit card and I just you know buy coffee with cash, that is a private transaction. Nobody really knows that I purchased that coffee. Nothing bad with anybody knowing that I'm buying a coffee, but it's kind of like you know you want to have some privacy when it comes to financial transactions. And so, yeah, I'm not sure if a if the existence of a mixer per se is is a bad thing, you know, um, but the US sees a different. Yeah, you've raised some very important open uh, questions there. Uh, and these, as you point out, are still being sorted out. Uh, important questions. I'm sure we'll be covering this story more in the future. Talking of stories that we are covering, I wanted to touch on a couple of other points here. Hold not. This is uh, the cryptocurrency industry shakeout is clearly not over. Singapore-based crypto lender and borrower Hold not is the latest victim. Uh, the company has paused withdrawals, swaps, and deposits. Uh, it says the move was due to recent market conditions and to focus on stabilizing our liquidity and preserving assets. Uh, however, another Singapore-based company, crypto exchange Zipmex Wallet, says it will start allowing some withdrawals of Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, this week. So I guess some good news there. Final story I wanted to touch on here, Moritz. Finally, Galaxy's net loss tripled last quarter to more than half a billion dollars. Galaxy's AUM plunged 40% from last quarter. Despite this, its Toronto-listed shares skyrocketed some 17% on Monday. I don't know if I'd say it skyrocketed. This is the volatility we see in this space on crypto uh, companies. On the earnings call, CEO Mike Novogratz said the company will continue to grow. We're also keeping an eye on Coinbase. The company recently hit with an investigation by SEC is reporting results today. Moritz, any thoughts on these two stories on Holdnot, on Galaxy, and on the resumption by Zipmax Wallet? Yeah, maybe start with uh, Galaxy. The loss, I mean, it's a large loss, but uh, it's not a surprise that it is a loss to begin with. Um, you know, we all know that uh, Mr. Novogratz uh, has been, maybe continues to be a fan of Luna. I'm not sure if the tattoo is still there, but, you know, that was a major position. And we all know that that hasn't worked. So it created a hole in the balance sheet. It's a loss, but the company is standing. And um, look, I think the market is looking through this. They know they're dealing with an extremely volatile, high growth, exponentially fast growing asset class. And, you know, it's it's super long duration. So the future for crypto apparently is bright. And therefore, you know, the stock reacted as it did yesterday with, a, I think, a 20% or so up move, despite, despite the bad news coming out. So buy on bad news. Is what happened there and then really on hodlnald it's same same but different same story different name um strikes me as exactly the same that we did see with vaults uh related to celsius so you have a centralized cfi lending platform that offers attractive yields to customers but then you know engages in speculative activity with customer deposits and you know those activities have gone wrong what exactly went wrong uh, with uh, Hodlnot, I don't know, but I guess it's been some maturity, you know, transformation mismatch, as is usually the case. So you lend out the money uh, longer than you know you have the other side against it, 
And at some point that no longer works. So same, same, but different really. Same, same, but different. Finally, one more breaking news story before we do our deep dive into an interview. Breaking today, Iranian media are reporting Iran has made its first official import order using cryptocurrencies worth some $10 million. It's a move likely aimed at evading U.S. sanctions. The news agency did not specify which cryptocurrency was used. We'll keep an eye on this story as it could have big geopolitical implications. I think that was actually a semi-official news agency coming out of Iran. Moritz, any thoughts on this story? The only thought I have, Ash, I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised. Whether it's a nice thing to see this happening is in the eye of the beholder, but am I surprised? No, absolutely not. You know, given the sanctions that, and this is not only about Iran, you know, we've seen this now with you know, Russia, I mean, their central bank reserve assets held elsewhere are essentially frozen. They can no longer access it. Um, you know, we've seen it in Cyprus where we have bank balance. You know, it's kind of like um, as a, in quotes, depositor, you're not really depositing anything with the bank. You can get sanctions. You can lose access to your fiat money at, you know, a finger, like a mouse click if somebody wants you to lose that access. So the same is true for countries. And to see countries kind of like, you know, um, circumventing sanctions or restrictions uh, using cryptocurrencies to avoid using the U.S. dollar is actually not a surprise and something I wouldn't be surprised to see happening more often in the future. Okay, to transition to our interview, when it comes to cryptocurrency investing, a big part of it is risk management, of course, as we saw with Galaxy Digital last quarter. Moritz, you spoke about how to survive in these tumultuous markets with Seth Gins, managing partner at crypto-focused investment fund, Coin Fund. Let's take a listen. Let's speak about, you know, the, the trading side of that business a bit, because, you know, as, as I've mentioned, there are some thesis-driven investors out there that would, you know, buy into a long position or maybe enter into a forward agreement to, you know, hold future tokens as they are released. And then they would hold it for a very long time because they're so convinced that this project is going to be just great, but it, it'll it'll take years to play out. They take the volatility on the chin, they take the drawdowns on the chin, they just stick with it. You know, they run into 18, 90% drawdowns or even more. That is kind of like their thing. Are you operating in the same type of way? So I guess what I'm getting at is like, you know, what's the turnover of your portfolio? How frequently do you change it? I mean, you've mentioned that, yeah, it can skew into equities, it can skew into tokens. So clearly there's some dynamics happening. You know, you're a fundamentally driven investor, but at what point uh, would you say, okay, enough is enough. I'm, I'm leaving that token alone. I'm no longer interested. You're taking a loss, for instance. Yeah, so um, we are um, long-term investors, um, but but we think one of the benefits of liquid tokens in crypto um, is the ability to risk manage. So um, if you think about uh, just going back to a, another dot-com uh, analogy, if you think about Amazon, um, you you could have held Amazon through the downturn. And um, and then all the way back up, and it was one of your uh, best performers um, over the uh, two and a half decade period um, from then till now. Um, or um, you could have risk managed that Amazon position somewhere along its path of being down over 90% in the, the dot-com bust, and you would have just added 
um, to that uh, that return potential. Or frankly, there there is a continuous set of options where you could have also held it, but then added uh, more at at the bottom. So what we love about liquid crypto is that continuous set of flexibility um, and optionality that that we have. Um, but what we're really looking for. Um, is the technological winners um, that we think are going to be the the big asymmetric opportunities over the long run, the exponential opportunities, but availing ourselves of the ability to to risk manage um, based on the fact that um, that that many of these opportunities are liquid and that that we have um, the ability within different funds to um to to avail ourselves of that liquidity so um but but we're taking long-term fundamental uh views on the investments um and the hope is that we're choosing the the opportunities that will be the next amazons that will see um that very asymmetric return potential First, Moritz, a really incredible conversation, a true peer-to-peer -peer conversation between market professionals that we love to do here on Real Vision. You were talking about long-term investments in crypto, a little bit of jargon in there for people who are new to financial services. What are the differences between illiquid venture investments and liquid tokens? And finally, what are the implications for risk management, Moritz? Yeah, start with the definition. So a venture capital investment and, you know, a VC type of fund, they usually come with 10 year plus lockup periods. Um, you would, you know, give money to a manager. They will not immediately deploy it. In most cases, they will hold it as dry powder and then invest as opportunities present themselves. But it's for a very long period of time. So it's a very long investment horizon. And, you know, it's a lopsided return, hopefully at the end of the road after 10 years. Um, you don't see a lot of the volatility because it's locked up and it's not reported. It doesn't have a daily NAV, these type of things, right? On the flip side, a token is liquid. It trades 24-7 and, you know, theoretically you could produce an NAV every day or every hour if that's what you want to do. And if it's liquid, that means you can buy and sell it, uh, which is not something that you can immediately do with a VC investment or a private equity investment because, you know, it's private and it's not listed on exchange. There's no liquid market that's open where you could go to and just trade. Um, so what Seth is telling us here, and this is where the rubber meets the road, is that he favors the liquidity because it gives him an opportunity. It gives him optionality. Um, let's distinguish if, if he's long or if you know anybody is long an asset that just goes up and up and up and up and up and it moves from the lower left to the, to, to the top right. Well, that's easy, right? You feel very good about this. Nothing to do there except for maybe you know increase your position size. But what if that position is volatile and it enters a drawdown and it's down 80%, it's down 90%. And, you know, we've seen this in the last couple of months with some of the DeFi tokens, some of the gaming tokens actually drawing down 80 and 90%. And now it's a question of trader skill and timing. Like, are you really so skillful that you'll be able to spot the opportunity at down 80 or down 90? And do you have the emotional stability to add to your investment down there, because that usually is a point of pain, right? Because you've lost so much money and your investors are starting to lose confidence and they're asking difficult questions. And you kind of like, you question yourself, like, was that the right position to take at the beginning? You know, maybe that was a mistake and you should throw in the towel. So this is difficult investing. By the way, that wouldn't be my investing style. I'm 
too much of a scaredy cat for that. Like I'm much more like a trend follower. If I have a small loss, I throw the position away. You know, I, I stand to live to fight for another day because I can always get back in. So I'm very prepared to take many, many small losing trades, get back onto the train um, as the trend resumes. But I'm very uh, reluctant to eat uh, into my core capital, like, you know, 80 or 90 percent that uh, that wouldn't feel very good to me. Everyone's different, which is why these markets are so fascinating. You know, he's a thesis-driven investor. He, you know, formulates these thoughts and these ideas in his head that, you know, some token is going to do many times, so go many axes um, from where it is today, and then they just, you know, buy that stuff. It's it's fascinating. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, it really is. Excellent insights, Moritz. What else did you and Seth talk about? So one interesting concept is the so-called layer zero protocols. Actually, that is a term that I have had for the first time ever in my life. So let's see what he says about this. And you've mentioned the term layer zero. And, you know, I think people are starting to get their heads around layer ones and layer twos, and we're categorizing the token universe or sectorizing that token universe into things such as Web3 and NFTs and metaverse and gaming and exchange tokens. And so here's Seth and he mentions layer zero. What is this? <laughs> so it's interesting. Layer zero means two different things uh, and they're related, um, but but the, the term is starting to, um, to morph. So layer zero historically um, was um, the uh, blockchains of blockchains, um, kind of the native interoperability blockchains. Think of Polkadot or Cosmos. Um, and um, those were um, ecosystems that were built around a, um, a, a technology platform that enabled interoperability between the blockchains within that ecosystem. Um, but then the layer zero that I just mentioned um, is um, one of the newer cross-chain interoperability solutions. And we actually don't think of that. So you think about layer zero quite literally when we're talking about Polkadot or, or Cosmos as, as sitting at the bottom of the technology stack. And then you would have your blockchains on top of that. And we think about where layer zero, the project sits, which is one of those cross-chain interoperabilities, as actually sitting a little further up in the technology stack, um, sitting on top of other blockchains and allowing for liquidity to be pooled across blockchains that don't necessarily have this core um, base ecosystem that they're all participating in. So, and by the way, we, we were talking about the cadence of innovation. Um, that that change, I'd say, has been a change um, that, that's happened over the last two years. Um, so um, a, a fairly quick um, change in nomenclature. Um, and, and really, I... I wouldn't say that it's a wholesale change in nomenclature as much as one of the projects at that cross-chain interoperability layer has the name Layer Zero. Um, but um, we're, we're seeing um, 
um, a, a little bit of a, an unexpected reconfiguration of the tech stack. Um, and, and then to take that one step further, we're now seeing um, a, a layer of the tech stack emerge called um, cross-chain uh, interoperability aggregators. So what they are uh, is a layer that sits on top of the different cross-chain interoperability protocols and allows you to send um, different types of activities through different interoperability protocols um, based on um, what you're optimizing for. Are you optimizing for liquidity? Are you optimizing for uh, trustlessness? And if we step back, and I think this is like a great micro example of what's happening, if we step back, what we're seeing happen is um, in the traditional software world, you would have a very um, purposeful development of the, the technology stack. Um, and it would involve all of the major players at different parts of that technology stack. And what you see in crypto is it happens organically. And it happens with developers who are based all over the world. And it happens in a very uncoordinated way. And by uncoordinated, I don't mean chaotic as much as I mean um, the, the teams are not necessarily saying, okay, you're dominant in this area. I want to work with you to, to figure out how to build a layer that will sit on top of you. Um, a lot of this is independent teams saying, this is where there's a problem. I want to figure out how to solve this problem. And they build a, a new layer of the, um, the technology stack. And then our job is sitting on top or sitting back as an investor and saying, um, rather than getting caught up in the very short-term dynamics, the very short-term moves, how do we think this is going to um, uh, look when the dust settles? Um, where do we think value is going to accrue over the, the medium to long-term? Okay, that's a mouthful. Let me give you some context on why this matters. These layer zero protocols, this is about cross-chain interoperability and aggregators. Protocols like Cosmos and Polkadot. Our viewers here on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing already know why this matters. There have been massive security breaches on bridges. These are uh, external mechanisms of connecting chains together. A huge one with Axie that I mentioned earlier in the show, most recently one with Nomad. Uh, Moritz, you're an investor. As we all try and understand this complicated software jargon, what's your take on this? Well, first of all, Ash, you know, Seth has given at least me, maybe some of the viewers as well, a little bit of homework for my upcoming vacation, which is, you know, to really read up on how a layer zero works. Because honestly, I was surprised to hear the term. I was always brought up to use the Bitcoin analogy. If you want to visualize that, you know, Bitcoin is a layer one, Lightning is a layer two. So therefore, layer zero needs to be sitting underneath Bitcoin, which is the layer one. But then Seth took this the other way around and said, like, you know, the layer zero could actually be sitting on top of the layer one and be the connective tissue that, you know, brings it together. So I want to read up on that. To your point on the exploits, and you've mentioned Nomad and these type of things, I agree with you. You know, most of the attacks and most of the exploits that we have, um, that we have seen and experienced or we needed to read about in the last couple of months, have been exactly at that level of that yes. at the level of interoperability. It hasn't been at the level of the exchange. I mean, maybe there has been an exchange hack and we just aren't aware of it. 
But three, four, five years ago, with regularity, there were exchange hacks. You know, that was the risk. That was the exploit. That is that is what, you know, was really uh, targeted. But but now it's these bridges, it's the scaling solutions, it's all these type of things happening at protocol level. That's where the risk is. Now, I think this is a growing space, by the way. Um, I think cross-chain interoperability is going to be a big, big thing because I find it difficult to imagine a world where we're going to have, you know, dozens and dozens of layer one blockchains. You know, we probably can do with a handful, five to ten, something like that. And they'll be good at specific things. You know, one is a little bit slower, but therefore has more security and the other one's faster and, you know, these type of things. But you want to be able to move between these chains. And that is what the interoperability is doing. So you can have a Bitcoin rapid move it to Ethereum mainnet. But it needs to be able to live on both chains now and find its way back or be able to go to yet another chain. These type of things are important for the entire ecosystem to work. I can only see this grow. And hence, you know, it's one of the things on the on the reading list for my upcoming vacation. Yeah, very much. Lots of reading, I think, for all of us to do with that. Shifting gears here a little bit to Ethereum, I've heard Seth has some big expectations for Ethereum post-merge. Yeah, indeed. And especially around the upcoming merge. So let's take a listen here. Do you have a fundamental model for Ethereum whereby you could say, yeah, it's it's you know, it should be a 10K or something like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the the change in supply dynamics, a, a lot of what a lot of what you discussed is more qualitative. Um, but but the change in supply dynamics is is very much quantitative, um, where um, the combination of going through the merge, um, not having uh, miners who are uh, sellers consistently, um, and then having EIP one five five nine with a, um, a an additional burn gets you to a very nice supply contraction. Um, so you end up with um, the sound money uh, meme on Ethereum, which, which is the dynamic that it's even better potentially than the store of value narrative around uh, Bitcoin in the sense that um, it will have supply contraction. Um, rather than um, uh, just stable supply, um, TBD on that. Um, but but I think the we we need to think about so the question of like where it can go um, is is I I think fairly clearly above the prior high given the change in supply dynamics. Um, but and there's another dynamic as well, which is the layer two scaling solutions that that we were talking about earlier. As you enter a world with scaling solutions that allow you to have much higher fees on the base layer, but not affect activity because you're amortizing those fees across a lot of users and a lot of transactions, um, you end up having the potential for much higher revenue generation in a way that doesn't end up um, slowing activity on Ethereum. So the problem that Ethereum had in the past was whenever activity picks up, whenever revenue generation picks up, it becomes unusable because fees move higher. A lot of the scaling solutions that, that are going to be coming to market with tokens over the next year allow you to amortize fees across a much bigger set of transactions and actually have high base level, base layer fees while not having the user experience um, such a high fee level, 
um, which again allows you to capture a lot more revenue generation. And that's what drives um, the, the uh, fee generation models for Ethereum um, much higher, reflected in a greater burn um, of, of Ethereum, um, which, which again would lead you to, to see much higher uh, prices for, um, for the token um, over time. Um, that said, like what, what I love about the setup here, so I'll t say two things. One, what I love about the setup is there's a growing amount of concern around whether miners try to do a hard fork into the merge and create noise. Um, whether there is um, a problem with the merge, which I think is uh, probably less likely, but there are some risks going into the merge, which lead the the merge to not be priced in fully um, going in. So this is about quantitative valuation model. Seth talks about the changes to supply dynamics in Ethereum. Obviously, some very technical points here, uh, Moritz. I'm going to just gloss over them. He talks about the merge, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, and about EIP-1559. This is a change in the fee structure in Ethereum. But what's interesting to me, big picture, is Seth talking about the sound money component. Here's what I want to ask you. As an investment professional, talk about the broad supply and demand dynamics. What happens when the supply of an asset contracts, Moritz? Absolutely, Seth. By the way, I thought that was one of the best parts. I mean, they were all good, all good parts and the conversation with Seth, but but this was really interesting. And it ties back to a conversation that I had with Seth personally about two months ago in London when I met him for the first time. And, you know, we were chatting about all sorts of things and he was saying, look, Moritz, at some point, you know, we may see that flip, the flipping between Ethereum and Bitcoin, meaning, you know, Ether becomes the dominant coin on in the ecosystem, it takes number one in the market cap tables and Bitcoin falls to position number two. So yeah, that could happen, but what does it mean? As it means a lot of things. It actually means that the idea that we have that Bitcoin is that monetary medium, you know, it's that is kind of like the, the narrative right now, right? It's the digital gold, it's a monetary medium. It's very good at that. It's very slow, but it's very secure. And Ethereum is this modern smart contracting platform after the merge even faster. Um, well, not directly after the merge, but with sharding then even faster, but more efficient after the merge. And so therefore it will have a big mode around it. And Seth was saying, well, you know what, if that's the case, if we're all using Ethereum, because Ethereum is so dominant, then it will also have a monetary component. It will also have a monetary character. And you might mm. use it in just the same way that you're using Bitcoin today to either store value or transfer value. You will do that with Ethereum. So that was that was interesting. Now, supply demand, this is what, you know, this merge is, um, it's not all about this, but it's a byproduct of that merge. It will reduce supply because that's programmed. And obviously the proof of work miners will no longer be in a position to sell because there's no longer like that mining block reward that's being given out. Um, and there's a greater incentive for users of Ethereum to stake their positions and therefore, you know, withdraw it from the liquidity um, of, of of the space and therefore all of that is a supply contraction which should move the price higher you know supply demand economics what's interesting to me and that brings me back to you know some of the things that i hear in the market is well you know we had a high of 4700 in ethereum it's trading between 1600 and 1700 today and we have another five weeks to go uh until the merge happens so 
why aren't we closer to that old high? You know, is it, you know, has that high been a mega bubble and, you know, that the 4700 price has been completely unrealistic? I don't know, but it's kind of like, you know, even though Ethereum is up 70, 75%, whatever from the lows, it's still far away from that high. Yeah. And people tell me, look, it's discounting a couple of things. It's discounting that there could be a glitch. It's discounting that there could be a delay. And it's discounting the fact that there's a risk of a fork. Um, so the fork, meaning that there's like, you know, some miners now uh, working against the upcoming merge and, you know, trying to retain the existing Ethereum mainnet as is. Um, so that that is a possibility. And, you know, some people are putting up trades around that. You know, one of the trades that I hear is, you know, going through the market is actually to be long spot Ethereum and short futures contract on an exchange or on a couple of exchanges to diversify counterparty risk that expires in say at the end of September, by at, at which point the merge should have gone through. But if there is a fork, then the spot Ethereum position gives you both, right? It gives you the new Ethereum, gives you the old Ethereum because that's the fork and the Ethereum futures uh, contract is tied to the current Ethereum uh, version. And therefore, you know, if there's a fork, current Ethereum should probably move lower it should pay out on the futures contract and you have two assets on the spot side. So that's a trade that's going through the market. Mm. Uh, I don't have that trade on. I just found it very interesting. By the way, it's a trade that you get paid for to make because the futures curve is in contango. So the futures contract is trading more expensively slightly than, than the spot position. So from a risk reward perspective, if you have, if you're just like a trader and you don't have any views on Ethereum, it's, it's a trade that at least you can research and, you know, think about. So positive carry because the trade is in contango because the futures curve is in contango, I should say, uh, and the ultimate derivatives position is covered because you own the underlying. Correct. That's right. Very interesting and very well said, Moritz. It's great to have you having these conversations with us on this show. Talking of which, I should say, we've got some questions from the audience on Ethereum. Uh, you up for taking some of these? Yeah, I can. So here's a question. Uh, can you or the community model or give an educated opinion on what percentage of ETH tokens will end up being staked after the merge happens, 369-12 month outlook. Foo, oh boy, that is a great question. Um, honestly, just give I a, do Just give know. us the future price, Moritz. That's all we need. Yeah, no, exactly. At different time we had, we had this last time. Out. You were asking me about the future price of something else, and I, I was extremely confident to give it that. Um, Toby, I'm really sorry. I... I don't know. I haven't spoken to people about that in this manner. Um, you know, the Ethereum that I have to, to an extent, by the way, it is staked uh, in, in my PA. Uh, I may keep that staked position for a while longer. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what the yield is going to be. Right. Raul was speaking about the Internet bond and, you know, this becoming the new yield curve. Right. And that is really interesting and fascinating at the same time, because it is a hurdle rate for the space. Right. If you can belong Ethereum and you like Ethereum because you know you get you get paid your yield in Ethereum. Um, but it, let's say that's seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, whatever percent. I mean, that becomes a big, big hurdle for an alternative asset. You gotta be that, you gotta be better than this, right? Otherwise I'm staying in Ethereum because you know, it's kind of like this blue chip type of thing. So all the micro, smaller cap, early stage tokens, they really need to measure uh, against that hurdle, I think. Right. Um, and the other thing is, Ethereum might be the new green um, 
crypto asset, you know, in ESG terminology for institutional investors. Um, this is, has always been the point of critique and the concern with Bitcoin. It's like energy intensive, it might be pollutive. You know, I don't necessarily agree with all of these assessments, but when you speak to institutional investors, that is an immediate point that comes up in every discussion that you have with them. It's like, you know, power consumption. Especially now, in Europe. Especially in Europe, that's correct. And, and now you have Ethereum going to proof of stake, which is, you know, it doesn't consume zero power, but it consumes very little power. You can run this off of your laptop, right? And your computers are running during the day anyway, so it doesn't really move the needle. So is this now green? If it is green, then that could be the go-to asset for institutional investors, even more so than Bitcoin. And if the institutional investors do it and they have a long-term view, and usually they do, then they may as well stake it if they feel safe with the staking mechanism and the processes behind that, which by the way, I should say, I should say they're not 100% secure, right? They're slashing risk. I mean, things can go wrong with staking, but let's say you like that setup and you make another between eight and 10% yield on the Ethereum position, that's very likely something that they'll do. So I expect the demand for this to be high, Toby, but I can't give you an exact number of, um, you know, what percentage that it's likely going to be. Yeah, and by the way, more it's something that you already know, uh, but some of our viewers who don't have experience in the fixed income markets may not. This is precisely the way corporate bonds trade. They're priced at a yield to maturity at some spread over treasury rate, the risk-free rate, which gives you that credit spread yield uh, to basically price in the default risk of a particular corporate bond. Correct. That's exactly right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Martz, anything else uh, that Seth Gins has on his mind? So, he had one other story. I mean, we are talking about all sorts of things, but the one that we picked is about regulation. And this is this is timely because, you know, I think, was it last week or earlier this week, we had the Senate come out that, you know, they're in support of Ethereum being regulated by the CFTC. So, it's going to be treated like a commodity in the same way that Bitcoin is, you know, treated like commodity and property. Uh, when I speak to other managers, they tell me this is the thing that just needs to happen. We need to have the regulatory clarity because we're kind of like concerned to touch any other asset right now than Bitcoin or maybe Ethereum. We're not even touching Polkadot or Solana Avalanche because they could be viewed as securities and then we'd be in a position that we would have offered an unresisted securities to, um, to US investors. So let's listen in and see what Seth is saying about this. We think regulatory normalization is the biggest story of this cycle. Um, we, we think it's incredibly important seeing a, a proper regulatory regime, um, but a regime that's supportive of uh, crypto as technology innovation, uh, as innovation that governments will want to keep onshore. Um, we're seeing a lot of positive movement in the US um, and, and we think that that will uh, be likely to spread over time. Uh, it's an area that we spend a lot of time on. And when you think about what that means, it's essentially the discount rate for the space coming down. So um, if you just look at the volatility of the space and 
um, use that as a way of uh, de developing or using as a proxy for the discount rate. I think the discount rate for crypto, generally speaking, is around 100%. So if I told you that my price target for an asset three years out um, was uh, X, you would want 100% return each year until we got to that price target. And that kind of sets the fair value for today. So discount rate required return, um, two sides of the same coin. Um, and, and we think that um, as the regulatory environment normalizes, that discount rate takes a one-time step down that's pretty material. If you think about the, the riskiest parts of the public equities world, um, like call it a mid-large cap tech name that isn't going to have cash flows for, for three, four years, those are usually discounted back at like a 35 40% uh, rate. Even biotech, a, a similar type of, uh, of level. So imagine the discount rate for a space that has long duration, so cash flows that are many years in the future, going down from 100 plus percent to 30 to 50 percent, that's a very, very big um, one-time uh, re-rating of the space higher. And then you have all of the growth on top of that tied to these being global protocols with global developers and a cadence of innovation that's off the charts. Um, so we're very bullish. Um, and, and we think that um, as excitement comes back into the space with each new bull market, you get a new cohort of investors coming into the space, and that will be accelerated by this regulatory normalization. So we're, we're very positive on um, the return potential to space coming out of this downturn. Um, and we're continuing to see um, a wave of top-notch developers come from the traditional world into crypto, a wave of financial talent come from the traditional world into crypto. Um, so we're just as excited, if not more excited, uh, versus where we were six to 12 months ago. What a great clip, Moritz. He comes out of the gate swinging and just lays out the thesis, quote, regulatory normalization is the biggest story of this cycle. He goes on to say, a regime that's supportive of crypto as technology innovation uh, and as innovation that governments will want to keep on shore. And finally, that we're seeing a lot of positive movement here in the United States. First, Moritz, uh, what are your thoughts on the role of regulation? And second, why do you think this is so important for investors to understand? Yeah, I wouldn't have used the word normalization, which is what he's using, because I don't really know what needs to be normalized. There isn't really that much regulation out there to be been, to begin with, you know, and, and, and all the regulatory frameworks across the world are, are slightly different. The taxation is different. But I guess what he what he's referring to is regulatory clarity, that there is a regulatory framework that investors can rely on and that investors can use as a compass to navigate the space so that they know what it is that they're doing and that they also know um, when they are misstepping and what they should not be doing. Now, if that happens, that is essentially for all of us who like crypto, that is a massive call option. We're all along that call option, assuming that regulation is not punitive, but supportive, right? In the same way that, you know, countries want to keep their tech companies at home at bay because, you know, that's where they employ people. That's where tax revenues are being generated. It seems that, you know, blockchain companies, blockchain technologies, all these things are going to be the tech companies of the future. Think about, you know, Web3 and all these dynamics that are happening. So you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and completely mm -hmm. kill the space. It needs to be 
middle of the row, everybody needs to have a seat at the table. And, you know, so this is this, I guess, is the supportive regulatory framework that he's talking about. And then he's tying this into asset pricing. And what he's saying is that right now, given that we have a lot of you know things that are unclear, the discount rate, and he was just using that as an example, is about 100%, which means that an asset that is trading at $50 today needs to be at $100 in a year's hence to reflect that 100% discount rate. You need it to double every year. And he's saying that discount rate will come down if there's regulatory clarity to something like 35, 40, 45%. That was the example that he gave with like a, a fast growing tech company that isn't making money for the you know next couple of years, but you know, may have a big business in five years down the road. You know, that's kind of like the discount rate there. But if you do this, like if you if you have the discount rate on an asset that has, and he was, I think he said infinite duration. Let's be clear about what it is that he means there. Ethereum doesn't have a maturity date like a bond, nor does Bitcoin or any of these other tokens as far as I know, right? I mean, they're just here to potentially live forever, which means their duration is infinite. And a slight change in the discount rate affects an asset with a long duration very, very strongly. You may recall the example of the now no longer 100-year Argentinian bonds and now no longer 100-year Austrian bonds, which were issued a couple of years ago. And I think those were great moves by the countries issuing them and very bad moves for investors buying them because they are so long duration. And we've now seen, you know, people say, yeah, it's a massive change in interest rates. Yes, I mean, they have risen, but, you know, <laughs> we're, we're still not like at super high interest rate levels. But, you know, the the, the 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 net value of these bonds, the market value of these bonds with, you know, a maturity or a duration of something like 60 years still use taking the coupons into account. I mean, they're off the charts. I mean, these things are like down massively. Um, and so this is this is essentially the effect that he's talking about with Bitcoin and Ethereum, all these tokens is discount rate goes lower. The duration of these tokens is essentially infinite. Therefore, they may actually jump. It's not potentially just a, a, a smooth move higher, it may actually be a gap event, like a massive jump that is stimulated by that regulatory clarity as it comes forward. Yeah, I believe the UK used to issue perpetual bonds. So maybe this is like the, uh, the new British empire is digital. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what we learned today. Here's what we learned. Seth Gins talked about the advantages of investing in liquid tokens. In his view, it allows investors to manage risk and make necessary portfolio adjustments, even when investing for the long term, which is his focus. Seth also talks about layer zero interoperability, underscoring how this space is still evolving. Seth is also highly bullish on Ethereum and the opportunities presented by the upcoming merge, especially regarding the smaller supply of ETH. Finally, he thinks the key story right now is regulation. Seth believes there are a lot of positive developments on that front here in the U.S., although uh, as today's news cycle has proven, there will always be some storms that blow across on that front from time to time. Finally, Moritz, it looks like we've got one more question from a viewer. Uh, this one comes to us from Ray on the Real Vision website. Uh, drawing, And this is the question, drawing parallels from the 2008 financial crisis, what are the stages the market needs to go through before the cascading liquidation events like Hodel knot that we saw today 
come to an end? Obviously, a very specific question, uh, drawing parallels to the 2008 financial crisis. He wants you to be the Nouriel Roubini of crypto. What are the sequence that we're going to see uh, in the event that we see these uh, challenges continue? Yeah, I was just, uh, I, I called myself smiling at the question because I thought, is there still anybody standing? I mean, which CFI lending platform do you know of that's still doing business apart from BlockFi? I mean, all the other ones are, I mean, the ones that I know of, I'm not sure how many there are, but like Vault is gone and Celsius is gone and Hodlnot is gone. And other, there are at least two or three others that I've read about, you know, who have, uh, who have stopped business or that are like within the restructuring process. So I'm not sure how many there are still left and, and, and how much uh, could be liquidated. I also don't know if the HODLNOT assets have been entered into kind of like a liquidation framework or whether they have been liquidated into the market. Right. Uh, that I don't know. But look, um, with every day that goes by, uh, you know, the probability increases that we have seen the lows. And, you know, I wasn't, I mean, there, there have been people on Real Vision and on other media channels and other platforms saying the low is in something like three or four weeks ago. I refused to join them at that point in time because, you know, it's like, nah, it's just never know. It's, you know, too early to say it, it, it didn't. I mean, I didn't I didn't want to make that um, that bet at that point in time. But we're kind of like, you know, trading relatively range bound. But if not range bound, then we're moving higher. And the merch seems to be a positive. It seems to be a tailwind. It's a magnet. It's, you know, grabbing attention. It's the topic du jour since two weeks. And I don't think it's going to go away. It's probably supportive for the asset class. So with every day that goes by, with every day that we're staying where we are, I think the odds increase that we're moving higher and, and not seeing new lows. So I'm not sure if that is a precise answer to your question, but uh, that's where I stand on this. Yeah, absolutely. And that gives some flavor, some color, some context. By the way, this Hodelnot story is so new. I just Googled it to see what the latest news flow on Hodelnot was. Uh, the first thing that comes up is the Hodelnot ad for seven and a quarter percent APY. So they're still running ads. That's how new this story is. There you go. <laughs> Maurice, it's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. You bring a level of depth and insight on the investing side uh, that really is a fantastic addition to what we do here on Real Vision. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ash. It's a pleasure. That's it for today's show. Tomorrow, we'll do a deep dive into our interview with Robert Schrott on stablecoins. See you tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.